0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, You can join me in opening to Daniel chapter 7 in your Bibles. And grateful to be able to open God's Word with you. If you're you're newer to um, our church family, I'm glad that you're here. My name is Drew. And we usually take this time to walk through a text of the Bible. We believe that the Bible is God's Word. And so um, we practice what's called expositional preaching, which is really just about exposing what God actually says. So this is about hearing from God and His Word. And we need His help, um, which is why we pray at the beginning of this as well, to understand His Word and then to respond um, appropriately. So, grateful you're all here. Kids, grateful you're here. Um, And uh, if you are uh, drawing a picture of what you hear this morning, I'd love to see it uh, afterward um, or sometime. And uh, Edgar mentioned that we don't tend to be very responsive, and um, I, feel, I just welcome you to do that. If you want to say things out loud in response, or be more expressive when we're singing um, or praying, or even in our, in our intercessory prayer when we do that as a, as a church family like we just did, if you want to kneel down when we do that on Sundays, or you want to stand up, or you want to just sit where you are, that's fine. So feel free. Uh, there's a lot of freedom in that. So Daniel chapter 7 now. And this uh, is showing, really, this whole chapter shows us where history is heading. It shows us our ultimate destiny as Christians. It shows us that our destiny as Christians is to enjoy our dignity as those who are made in God's image to reflect His character in the world, to reflect His good rule. But Daniel shows us also the hard road to get there. The pattern we see in Jesus is the pattern that He gives to us, which is suffering and then glory. By the way, I'll pause right now and note that middle school students are dismissed to their classes if we didn't say that already. Um, So, here's how how Paul put it, this pattern of suffering then glory. If we suffer with Him, we will reign with Him. So, it's fitting that we look at this text on the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church or for persecuted Christians, because many Christians are suffering for their faith. Uh, And for us in America, we shouldn't overplay the suffering we experience as Christians. There is real, significant persecution going on across the globe, and many of us have not experienced anything like it. But that also doesn't mean that there is no form of persecution for Christians here The New Testament says that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Some of you have experienced these temptations to compromise. You've been forced with costly choices in your vocation, in your workplace, and our culture seems to be heading uh, toward various forms of increasing social alienation for Christians. But Daniel chapter 7 shows us that God has a plan. History is heading beyond the suffering we experience toward a kingdom of love and justice where God and His people will be forever. So before we look at this chapter, um, I want us to step back and just see where this chapter, chapter 7, fits in the whole book of Daniel, because that can be helpful for us understanding what this chapter is really all about. So chapter 7 here of Daniel is really the central chapter in the book. Um, Central in many ways. It is the center chapter. It's the hinge between the two halves of Daniel. So, Daniel essentially has two main sections. The first six chapters that we've considered in previous weeks give us six stories. They're about Daniel and his friends. Often when we think of the book of Daniel, we think of that. Daniel in the lion's den and his friends um, in a fiery furnace. So, they're in exile in Babylon. And these stories show us that God's people have great challenges when they're in exile. They're in the midst of a kingdom, Babylon, that rejects God and His people. But here's what we see over and over and over in these stories. We see that God humbles proud kings and He delivers and blesses His people. If you've been with us these previous couple months, that's what we've seen in the the first half of Daniel. Over and over and over again. God humbling these proud kings and delivering and raising and blessing His people. Now the next six chapters, chapters 7 through 12... Give us four visions. And here's the central message of these visions. God's people will suffer in the kingdoms that reject God and His people, but God will humble the proud kings and kingdoms and deliver His people in the end. Now that sounds just like the first half of the book, doesn't it? The stories of Daniel and his friends in the first half show these two themes. One, that God brought down proud kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And second, that He delivered and raised up His people through these near-death situations or when their life was on the line. The visions of the second half of Daniel show us the same themes but on a cosmic scale. God will bring down the proud kingdoms of this world and He will deliver And resurrect his people. So the first half of the book shows that God delivers Daniel and his friends from near-death situations. Delivering them. But in the second half, God will deliver his people from death itself. The book culminates in chapter 12 with the hope of resurrection after suffering that actually leads into death in many times, or from death itself. So the book culminates with that promise. So in the end, God will humble proud kings and kingdoms and raise his humble people. So here's what I think is going on here. Daniel's many deliverance stories, Daniel and his friends, picture the ultimate deliverance of God's people. We may not be delivered from near-death situations like Daniel and his friends. Often God does that, but he doesn't always do that. Very often his people suffer to the point of death, but we will be delivered from death itself when Jesus returns. So Daniel 7 is, now here's where Daniel 7 fits. It's the central chapter. It's the hinge between these two halves, and this is often how Hebrew writing works. If you're reading stories in the Old Testament, you want to look for the center. The center is often one of the most important parts, and so the center is the heart of it. And as the central chapter, it introduces us to the central figure. It shows that one king and his kingdom is at the heart of the future hope for God's people. It promises one who we looked at last week called one like a son of man. Kingdoms will rise and fall in this world, but this son of man will have an eternal kingdom for his people. And we saw last week that Jesus is this son of of man. Jesus is then the center of the book of Daniel. So this is the message of Daniel chapter 7 in light of all this. God will bring down the persecuting kingdoms of this world, and He will give an eternal kingdom to Jesus and His people. So let's read now the second half of this chapter together, and let's pray before we do. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and We thank you that um, you've given it to us. Thank you that you've given us mental capacities to understand your word, to hear from you. Thank you that you give us perspective in suffering, uh, that your word applies to every moment of our life and all the practical situations, and it also gives us perspective on world history. So we pray that this, this morning that you, by your Spirit's power, would open up our minds to understand your word rightly and open our hearts to respond Fittingly as well, so that we would live and act in a fitting way in coming days. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, jumping into the middle of this. This chapter has two main parts. The vision is the first half we saw last week, and the second half is an interpretation, but gives a little more details about the vision. So, as for me, Daniel, after he saw these, dream, these visions in his dream, my spirit within me, in verse 15, was anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts that he saw in his vision are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever." Then I desired to know the truth of the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And I wanted to know about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints. And prevailed over them until the ancient of days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. And he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment. And his dominion shall be taken away. To be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept this matter in my heart. So the progression here. Suffering and then glory. God's people will experience tyranny and then triumph. So let's consider that movement together. First the tyranny, then the triumph. So first, the tyranny. So let's just briefly review this vision that we saw in the first half of the chapter last Sunday. Daniel saw four great beasts coming out of this chaotic sea, and the fourth beast was incredibly terrifying and destructive. It had ten horns, and then one other horn came up A little horn, and this little horn had eyes and a mouth, and it would speak these boastful things. And then Daniel saw after that this vision of the Ancient of Days, God, the Father, seated on His throne, and the fourth beast was destroyed. And then one like a son of man came on the clouds to receive an eternal kingdom. Now, that's an overview of history from the time of Daniel onward. Um, to the coming of God's kingdom. The four beasts are symbols for four kings and kingdoms that would come. Daniel was living at the time he received this vision during the first kingdom, which was Babylon. More kingdoms will arise, but eventually God will destroy them and give the kingdom to the Son of Man, which we saw as Jesus. So when Jesus came, His kingdom dawned, and He'll return one day to renew the world and fully establish His kingdom. So Daniel sees this terrifying vision of four beasts and then the kingdom of God, and now in our text, he's terrified by what he saw, and so he asks someone about what this vision means, and especially this fourth beast, which was more terrifying than the rest, with the ten horns and then the one other horn. So the angel, um, I think for various reasons, it's probably Gabriel, the angel that shows up in other places, explains what this symbolizes. Verse 23 says this, so you can look at this with me. There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, "...which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces." So this is a succession of kingdoms, these beasts. They're probably Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the fourth, if it's not the Greek Empire, is the Roman Empire. Um, And this fourth beast has ten horns on it. This represents additional kings and kingdoms that come from this kingdom." it uh, may not be literally 10 this could be a symbolic number for many are coming the focus quickly moves to an additional horn though that rises up and look at this description in verse 25 he shall speak words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given to him for a time times and half a time so this is an arrogant king he defies god persecutes god's people That phrase wears them out. He wears them out. So who is this little horn? He's the remaining little. Maybe he became bigger. It seems like he might have. Well, you probably won't be surprised to learn that students of the Bible differ on their understanding of who this little horn is. Some think that this little horn uh, did come after Daniel, but passed to us. It could be one of the Greek kings in the Greek kingdom named Antiochus IV. Antiochus Epiphanes. He ruled in the 2nd century BC, and he fits the description here. He does show up later in Daniel. He, um, so it could have been him. Matches the description in some ways. Some think that it was a Roman general named Titus who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in around AD 70 later became an emperor. Others think, though, that this isn't someone from a past to us now, but this is actually still yet future to us. They say that this is a future ruler who will persecute God's people shortly before Jesus returns. So, the question, right, is, is this little horn um, referring to a ruler 2,000 years ago or even longer, or are we still waiting for him? So, I think the answer is yes, Um, both, and I have good reasons for that, not just, well, that makes it easy, right? Um, In the New Testament, John refers to the Antichrist who is yet to come, when John was still writing in the New Testament after Jesus. The Apostle Paul refers to the coming of a man of lawlessness. He says that in 2 Thessalonians that a rebellion against God is coming, And then he says this, and the man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So this little horn, this king is probably being referred to here in the New Testament as the antichrist or the man of lawlessness or the son of destruction, described in many ways like this little horn that shows up here. And he's still to come from that New Testament perspective, but there's something true about those who think this ruler did come in the past, because there's a reason why many scholars think that Antiochus, Epiphanes, and the Roman general Titus, or Nero, or other people through history um, look like good candidates. It's because these rulers do look a lot like this little horn described here and some other descriptions um, of rebelliousness later in this book. And so, there is a sense in which a pattern is set up in the world, There are rulers who act like this little horn. They are precursors and patterns leading up to a final climactic king who will oppose God and his people. So there are uh, many leading up to a final one. And this is really the way the New Testament talks about this kind of thing. Listen to how John put it in 1 John 2.18. He said, it is the last hour and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so Antichrist is coming. He says, so now many Antichrists have come. Paul himself, even when he talks about the man of lawlessness coming, he says the mystery of lawlessness is already revealed. So there's a sense in which there's an already and not yet reality to this. There's an already presence of Antichrists that reflect this rebellion against God and persecution of God's people, but it's leading toward one great climactic one yet to come. The book of Revelation also supports this. In Revelation chapter 13, this is another vision like the book of Daniel. And you don't need to turn there. It's just very brief. John gives a vision of a beast rising from the sea, clearly drawing on Daniel 7. And this beast represents the Roman Empire of the first centuries. And it's described as the kind of the culmination in a composite picture of all four beasts in Daniel 7. Overlapping images of all four Described also in, in a way that fits this last horn, this little horn image here with arrogant and persecuting and this antichrist-like ruler. And the point in revelation is this: The Roman Empire of the first century was this great beast-like empire. It was violent. it persecuted God's people, and this kind of persecution will endure. I don't think that's limited to the Roman Empire. This world, century after century after century, will have this kind of oppression present against God's people, and it will continue until Jesus returns. And so, you know, I think this is probably why every generation, it seems, thinks like they're in the last few years before Jesus returns. Uh, Because they look around and think, man, this is really bad. Um, And it seems like it's getting worse. And that person looks like a good candidate for being whatever the Bible's talking about with this little horn, this antichrist, this rebellious person, this man of lawlessness. And so, um, this, it, that's fitting. This pattern will keep showing up through the ages. And so, in light of this, I just give you a gentle caution um, about books that try to make the case that we are in the last few years before Jesus returns, because… Uh, we don't know. I remember when I first went to Bible school. I was in the library. I spent a lot of time just looking at the books there. I remember coming across one, and I didn't really know about any of this stuff at the time. But I remember being puzzled. I came across one that said something like, "You know, 88 reasons why we know Jesus will return before, before 1988." And, I, and I was, this was like 2004 when I was looking at this, and I was like, "I don't know if that book's very helpful anymore." Um, and then went to the bookstore too, and there's this picture of. Um, I think it was Saddam Hussein on the cover, and it was all these end time stuff that's happening right now. And now looking back, I'm thinking, that's probably not a bestseller anymore, right? So just year after year after year, people kind of read the headlines and try to put together and say, no, 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 Now this. Now we're living in the last times. Maybe. Uh, But it's my point here is that we shouldn't be surprised if Christians keep thinking that because from a New Testament perspective, we are in the last days. We have been for 2,000 years. Jesus' kingdom has dawned. Many antichrists have come. And it will build, its pattern will recur until a final one will come. So, are we in the midst of kind of the many patterns that are still going on or the final one? I don't know. Um, Maybe. But here's the emphasis in Daniel. This last beast and this little horn will persecute God's people. And this has happened to Christians in every age through history. Those in power often seek to persecute. God's people. They seek to wear them out. Christians have died for their faith from the first century onward. And this still happens today all over the world. I have a friend um, who is a Chinese Christian. He has many friends in China. He told me recently about a friend of his who was recently put in prison, it seems, for seven years, um, that it will be that long. And he, it was for having a Christian bookstore. He told me about churches that are meeting in secrecy. And now, if pastors are found out, they're arrested. Christians in North Korea meet in secrecy. If they're found out, they can be killed or sent to labor camps. Well, they'll basically serve as slaves. Many become Christians in Islamic countries and have been disowned or beaten by family members. So this has happened. It is happening. It will happen. And Daniel 7 reminds us of this sad reality. And so that's the tyranny. But now second, we move to the last part of the vision, which is the triumph. Verses 26 to 28. This is a new emphasis now. The focus is not just on the Son of Man that we saw last week as Jesus, the King, but now it's on the people of His kingdom, the saints, the people who are in the kingdom, and the focus is on how the dominion is transferred from these beasts, these kingdoms, to the people of God. Look at verse 27 again. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven Shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. You can actually glance back at verse 21. It says something similar, summarizing this moment when the kingdom is given to the Son of Man. And then it focuses on not just the king, but his kingdom. It says, Judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So the focus of this chapter then is not just on Jesus as the Son of Man, but on the people of the kingdom, the people who are persecuted by the kingdoms of this world. And then one day there will be, this chapter shows us, a great reversal. The violent kingdoms will be humbled and brought down, and dominion will be given to God's people. The first will be last, and the last will be first, as Jesus put it. So the great hope of this text then, is not just that persecution will end one day. It's that the beastly rule of the kingdoms will be replaced by the humane rule of Jesus and his people in a new creation forever. Now, that may sound somewhat strange um, to you. And I don't think we talk about this enough, that God's people will be rulers over the earth. And we could get the wrong idea about this as well. So, let's consider this together, because this is really... um, Daniel 7 is really... uh, plotting down in the middle of a whole Bible theme from beginning to end. And so let's just briefly walk through the story of the Bible in light of this theme of dominion. We have till about two, right? We had the time change, gave us an extra hour. We'll we'll use that, right? I'm just kidding. Just in, in a couple moments here. In creation, if we go to the beginning of the story, God is the King, and He made humanity in His image and the first thing he told them to do, what he commissioned them to do, as made in his image, is to have dominion over everything. It says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over everything. So humans were placed as the pinnacle of creation, as kings and queens, as royal, to reflect God's rule. God's the true king, but he makes us to reflect his rule, to rule in his place, to reflect his character as we exercise good, loving Dominion and care for creation in the world. We're stewards of creation, called to care for the world. But Adam and Eve rejected God's rule, His kingship, and now we are—we have sinful hearts. We're broken. We're fallen, and so we distort this rule. The way we rule makes a mess of things. We oppress one another. Uh, we're selfish, and so these—that's why these kingdoms are, display, are described as beasts. Here, we we rule less. In less humane ways, meaning in ways that aren't fitting for who we are as humans, made in God's image, but in more beast like ways, in ways that reflect the animal kingdom um, more than that. And so, but God promised Daniel in this vision that a son of man, one like a son of man, will come to rule. And I think he's called one like a son of man because this is picturing a true human. A human being will come, though he's described in divine ways too. We find later, right, that Jesus is the God-man. But here he's described in these human ways because he's the true human. He's going to do what we failed to do. He's going to rule as we failed to rule. And this is Jesus. He is the new Adam. He's fulfilling our calling to rule with wisdom and goodness and justice. And when Jesus came, through his death and resurrection, he established his kingdom. He is reigning as the true human king right now. His kingdom has dawned. And we get in on this. Not just coming under His kingship, but actually we're restored to rule with Him. At the heart of the Bible is this theme that God is restoring the lost rule of humanity, our lost dignity in this rule. Daniel here doesn't just say that the dominion will be given to the Son of Man, but to the saints, it's all true Christians, it's the people of God, and Jesus came to restore us to this. So Jesus himself said this in Luke twelve thirty two. he said to his disciples, who are feeling anxious, as we may be feeling right now, in many ways, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Uh, Jesus is echoing Daniel 7 here. And so now we look ahead to the new creation to come in the repeated promise of the New Testament, is that one day, though we suffer, we will reign with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him, Jesus said, to sit with me on my throne. That's incredible. In the very last chapter in the Bible, describing the new creation to come, echoing our lost dominion in Eden, says this, the Lord God will be their light and they will reign with Him forever and ever. So this is about the dominion that God gave us in creation. It's now restored to us for us to steward creation and have a a loving dominion over it. So the new creation to come will be the restoration of what everything was supposed to be in Eden, but even better. Our future destiny, I know I've said this over and over, I'll keep saying it, it's helpful to remember, our future ultimate destiny is not that we go to heaven when we die, though that is part of it. It's beyond that. After we go to heaven to be with Jesus when we die, we await Jesus to return, resurrect his people, be reunited with our bodies that have died, and we'll reign with him on a renewed earth one day, a new creation to come will be restored to our dignified place and purpose of enjoying God, enjoying His people, enjoying His creation, and ruling with kindness. And so, what a great hope to every persecuted believer. When the, when the kingdoms, the beastly kingdoms of this world persecute our brothers and sisters, every one of those brothers and sisters in Christ they're messing with is a future king or queen of creation. And Jesus will... Vindicate them in the end. The last will be first and the first will be last. What a hope. And notice it's all grace. Verse 27 This kingdom shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. It's a gift because we have all failed, every one of us, to rule as we ought. It's part of our sinful condition. Look at the way we take care of things around us and the people around us. We create a mess very often. We don't care for creation, creatures, or one another well. And this is why we need Jesus. He's the Son of Man, the true human, who ruled perfectly for us, died for our forgiveness, and rose for our restoration to this rule. So, how do we respond to this? There's a few suggestions that rise from this text. First, this is sobering. When Daniel received this vision, his first first response was not delight. Look at verse 28. As for me, Daniel... My thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. Now that's, at one level, a fitting response to a terrifying vision. I mean, it doesn't seem like this thing happened to him every day. He's probably in his 70s, going to sleep like he has thousands and thousands of times before, and then all of a sudden he's seeing these crazy beasts. I mean, you're going to be freaked out even if it's good news in the end. Um, But it also seems like it's a fitting response because he learned that suffering was coming for God's people. Remember, Daniel was in exile in Babylon. He may have thought he was nearing the end of it. He may have thought God's people are going to return to their land soon. But the vision shows us that even if God's people return to their land soon, which they did, the exile is not over. It's going to keep going because this beast is going to lead to another beast, right? Another kingdom and another kingdom and another kingdom. The persecution's going to keep going. And so, this is still true for us today. Christians live in this world as exiles, The world is not yet transformed to be our true home. It's a place of suffering and very often persecution for God's people. It very well may get worse in the future. And we can't avoid it. You know, as Christians, we talk a lot here about um, how we are to bless those in our culture, to serve in our culture. And we're called to do that, to be a light to the world. But we always have to remember that no amount of service and smiles can keep us from suffering. They persecuted Jesus, the very one that we hold up as the example of the brightest light, the most beautiful, humane person that's ever lived, God in the flesh, and they killed him. And Jesus said, yeah, and they'll do it to you too. So, this is sobering. So, let's be prepared to suffer. Let's be prepared to make costly decisions for Jesus. Second, let's regularly pray for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. We've been blessed in America with a minimal level of suffering for being Christians compared to many places around the world. So I encourage you to regularly pray, as Edgar encouraged us, for our brothers and sisters. Sign up to receive updates from Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors. Um, Use them as reminders to pray. Pray for the Christians to remain faithful in persecution. Pray for those who are persecuting them to come to Christ, like, like with what happened to the Apostle Paul. Pray that they'd be, the Christians would be comforted by God's presence and His Word when it seems like everyone else has forsaken them. Pray that the Lord would give them a great joy and hope in the midst of sorrow and a joy and hope in this restored, dignified calling of exaltation at the end and vindication in the end. And then finally, let's embrace this dignified vision of our destiny. You were created for glory. From the page one of the Bible, the message to humans is that you were created for glory. You matter. You matter to God. You have a purpose in this world to rule and exercise loving dominion, reflecting God's character in the world. Everyone can do this, but we've also failed, right? We've failed to do this, and we're sinners, and we need God's forgiveness, and that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus died to forgive us, and He rose to restore us, and He is restoring us to this. So, and when He returns, He's going to establish His kingdom in its fullness, and we'll, we'll live in a very earthly, real, physical kingdom in the new earth. Our eternal future is not disembodied in, in heaven, but embodied in a restored world, and we'll be restored to this dignified world. Role. And and we can already begin doing this because by the Holy Spirit, God is renovating our hearts so that we would begin to reflect His rule again in the way we treat people, in the way we serve, in the way we lead, in the way that we care for creation. Um, All of this matters because we matter and this world matters to God. So, in light of this, let's pray and then we'll celebrate communion together in a few minutes. Father, we thank You for truth. We thank you that you've given this to us. Um, For me, I I couldn't imagine us making this up even if we tried. It's too glorious. And we're so grateful that you would put this before us and tell us about who we were created to be. And even when we've rejected you and said, no thanks, you kept loving us and you want to forgive us. And renovate our hearts to restore us, and you give us this beautiful promised future. So we pray um, for us together here in this room, and those who are listening and live stream or later online. We pray that you would uh, kindle within us a fresh affection for you, and desire to reflect your rule by your Spirit's empowering presence. And we pray for anyone who's not yet reunited to you through Jesus, restored to this calling. We pray that you would do that even now. Bring them to repentance and faith and let them experience the joy of their salvation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now, and the Lord's Supper is a picture of the joy of the kingdom we're talking about. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He spoke about His coming kingdom. So, He said this, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it, listen to this, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So we eat this meal with the kingdom of God in mind as well. In one sense, the kingdom has dawned. We are eating this meal as the people of God's kingdom. Jesus has risen. He is on His throne. The kingdom is here. But we also still wait for the fullness of the kingdom to come. And so, in a sense, this is an appetizer for that coming feast that Jesus will throw for His people in the new creation. So, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Many of you have already uh, grabbed the bread and cup on your way to your seat, but if you are trusting in Christ and therefore, we'll participate in this meal with him as your king and brothers and sisters around you. Um, you can grab it in the next few minutes when we sing the ne- or as we reflect during this next song. Just put up your hand, and um, deacons will come and uh, give you um, what you need for that, give you the elements. And so, after the song, I'll come back up, and then we will eat and drink together. So, if you're here and you're exploring Christianity and this good news of Jesus is new to you, we're really glad you're here. And uh, my hope and prayer is that you would come to know Jesus as your King. Um, and I encourage you to use this next time, these next few minutes, to just consider what it would mean uh, to trust Christ and follow Him. So rather than eat and drink, uh, reach out to Christ by faith. And then for all of us, let's use these next few minutes to reflect. Reflect on Jesus. Um, repent of any unconfessed sin in your life. Rejoice in his grace to bring us to himself. Um, So let's uh, pray one more time here, and then we'll sing together, or we'll reflect during a song together. Our Father, we thank you for this uh, meal, and we pray that you would guide us by your Spirit in in these next few minutes to uh, commune with you together, uh, to reflect on your grace to us in Jesus, to repent of our unconfessed sins, and to Rejoice in the hope that you give. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.